This, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Liv Oaf. It's almost Halloween, which has us here at Second Story thinking about ghosts. In the Celtic tradition that started the modern version of Halloween, the 31st of October was a night when the boundaries between the living and the dead opened up and became blurred. In honor of that idea, we're bringing you a story about one kind of ghost, the specters of family legacy and heritage, whose memory and influence never quite fade, even as we grow away and apart from them. In a story about the haunting influence of his forefathers, Second Story is proud to present J.C. Avaliotis. Sometime late in his third year, my son decided his favorite letter was O. This was after he knew what letters were, could recite his ABCs and knew that letters made up words, but before he could recognize many. Any, really. Except for O, he had that one down, so it was his favorite. And one day late in his third year, Albie and I were hanging out and he noticed something. Daddy you have two of my favorite letter on your arm. We were playing on the floor in his room early one morning. I was in a short sleeve t-shirt, so my tattoo was visible. And Albie traced the two O's on my right bicep over and over with his finger. What does it say, Daddy? It says, so it goes. So it goes, he repeated, trying out the sound of it. Why is it on your arm, he asked pronouncing it Aum. One of a million little details about him I am terrified I will forget before I can realize how much I will miss them as he gets older. Why is so it goes on my arm? Like all of my son's best big questions, there are a lot of ways to approach this one. I decide on, it's from a book I liked a lot when I was younger. You must have really liked it, Albie says. <laughs> That's right, buddy. But why did you get it on your arm, he asked again. The real answer to that question is impossible to explain to an almost three-year-old. And even though it's inevitable, I'm not sure I want him to have to understand it. At least not yet. I have these two uncles. Uncle John, my dad's brother, lived with us for a while when I was in middle school and lived close to our house after that. Uncle John was my godfather. When I was little, he seemed like a giant. Large chest and belly, strong arms, wild shock of reddish hair, and a big beard. Tattoos. For most of my childhood, he didn't realize that you treat kids differently than you treat grown-ups. And Uncle Sonny. He's really my great uncle, my grandfather's brother. My grandpa on my dad's side died when I was really young, so Uncle Sonny was our family's connection to that generation, patriarch of the family, which is a big deal to Greeks. We all just called him Uncle Sonny. Short, round, bald, blunt, easy laughing. Tattoos. He lived with us all through my last few years of high school in a town about 30 miles outside of Atlanta, Georgia. 
My dad had moved there for work, and family followed him. So one day, just a few weeks before my high school graduation, I walked into the parking lot after the final bell, and Uncle John and Uncle Sonny were sitting there in Uncle John's pickup. It was weird because they had never once picked me up from school, certainly not in my last year of high school when I was either driving or getting rides home with friends. They had the windows down. They were listening to Rush Limbaugh turned up real loud, both sipping from red Dixie cups that I knew to be full of beer. Get in, Uncle John said. Where are we going, I asked. Well, Uncle Sonny said, inflecting his voice up to sound a little like his favorite comedian, Curly from the Three Stooges. That is entirely up to you. We're going to the Army recruiter's office or a tattoo parlor, Uncle John said, locking eyes with me as a shit-eating grin spread wide on his face. Aw, oh, fuck you guys, man. My uncles laughed. They loved it when I pushed back, broke the mold of the quiet, good kid they were worried I was becoming. So which is it going to be? Uncle John asked, still grinning, but with a harder edge behind it. His eyes said, your move, smart guy. I thought a million miles an hour. I was already accepted into college, already knew how I was going to pay for it. More importantly, I was 18. I knew they couldn't force an 18-year-old to get a tattoo or to join the military. This was more a fuck you, a game of chicken. A tall, skinny kid with glasses standing outside a pickup truck trying to decide whether to get in. They wanted me to refuse and walk away and demonstrate that I wasn't a real man. They would have disputed that characterization. They would have said they were helping me be reckless and or dutiful to do what teenagers are supposed to do, what they both had done. But however you characterize it, it was a standoff. This is how fucked up masculinities have power. Whatever I did, reinforced their idea of what a real man is, either by accepting it or by bearing the humiliation I'd feel for falling short of it. There was nothing outside that strong, brittle construct. I made the choice in an instant. Tattoo parlor, I said, taking off my backpack. Move over, old man, I said to Uncle Sonny. They were surprised and laughed and cheered. I lit up a cigarette as they pulled away from my school, mind racing. I had called their bluff. But now I had to figure out what the hell tattoo I was going to get. I'm the first man in my family in a bunch of years, going back a few generations, not to serve in the military. This wasn't a big deal to my dad, who was the first in his family to go to college. The army paid for him to become an engineer. He was proud of both his intellect and his service, but he didn't push me, even when it became clear my path would be very different from his. Me not joining the army was a bigger deal for Uncle John. He and my dad enjoyed arguing. My dad liked it, but Uncle John loved it. I've heard him switch sides mid-debate just to keep the argument going. In middle school, when Uncle John still lived with us, I used to sit on the porch listening to my father and Uncle John argue, both smoking and sipping beer from Dixie cups. Uncle John would flick ash off of his large forearm. It bore the marks of his time in the army, scars, and tattoos with numbers and letters, battalion and company nicknames, crudely drawn soldiers with blunt weapons. His arms were incomprehensible and fascinating to me. 
a hieroglyphic of masculinity. I learned the shape of my mind talking things out on that porch. I don't know if I became a liberal to argue with my father and uncle or if my father and uncle argued with me because I became a liberal. And just as these dynamics between my father and uncle and me were shifting late my sophomore year, Uncle Sonny moved in. I hadn't really known him well before then. He'd worked at the post office, served in the Air Force. And one night after he moved in from my bedroom, I overheard him say something about me to my dad and Uncle John, who was married with two daughters and a house near ours by that point. He's the last of the line, Uncle Sonny said. If he dies with no sons, our name dies with him. That boy sleeping in there, that's our name. Fucking A, I heard Uncle John say. And I heard them pour another shot and toast to me and my future sons. I fell asleep that night thinking hard, this strange, uncomfortable, new enormity of feeling surging in my chest. Uncle Sonny was amused by my bookishness. One evening in my last year of high school, we were all on the porch arguing about taxes, me for, them against. Uncle Sonny interrupted me. Have you ever had a gin and tonic? I paused. Wait, the the drink? No. He rolled his eyes and mumbled to himself, I have to do everything around here. And then he went inside and came back <laughs> with a very tall, very strong gin and tonic. Drink this. My dad started to protest, but Uncle John interrupted. Uncle Sonny's right, Jim. If he's going to go to college, there's a lot of shit he needs to know. <laughs> From then on, they staged something kind of like a reverse intervention. If we don't teach you some of this stuff now, you'll never know what mistakes you should be making, Uncle John would say, pushing a bottle of tequila toward me. They started pushing me to get a tattoo after my college acceptance arrived. I resisted, but after that, I frequently found myself standing in front of my bathroom mirror, shirtless. I hated my skinny chest and my pipe cleaner arms. I would think of my uncle's arms, their tattoos, wondering what my arms would look like, inked, bigger. I don't know if I truly liked the idea or if I was just trying to please my uncles. I've never been really clear on where my feelings end and my sense of obligation begins, but I would never have done it, and my uncles knew that. So they just showed up at school. My son met Uncle Sonny once, a few months before he died in 2015. Uncle Sonny was so proud when he learned that my wife and I were having a boy. And when I heard Uncle Sonny was dying, I knew I wanted to get Albie to Florida to see him. Albie wasn't two yet. And Uncle Sonny looked skinny and drawn. But there's a picture of me and my dad and Albie and Uncle Sonny sitting on Uncle Sonny's couch. Uncle Sonny and Albie are looking at each other and smiling. This is one of my favorite photos. Albie met Uncle John at Uncle Sonny's funeral. He was funny and goofy with my son, the same way he had been with me when I was small and became enthralled with him. Albie liked him a lot. Uncle John taught Albie how to say our last name, Ava Lotus, it isn't easy. He got a kick out of it, and I could see Albie enjoying the attention, learning to say our name, wanting to please this mountain of a man with the infectious smile and easy laugh. I knew what Albie was feeling. I still feel it. 
even under layers and layers of complicated, painful memories of my uncles since I was in high school, racist email forwards, an unspeakably awful family dinner the evening of 9-11, fucked up relationship with alcohol, some scary stories with firearms, the life my family and I live geographically, politically, couldn't be more removed from the men in my family. I had hoped this would protect Albie from some of the pain and confusion that I felt, that I still feel. But I wear the story of the men in my family inked into my flesh and deeper. I can't hide it from Albie any more than I can hide my tattoo. From the driver's seat, Uncle John took a drag on his cigarette, flicked ash out the window. So what tattoo are you going to get? You'll see, I said. You're probably going to hate it. It wasn't long into the drive when it hit me. One of those rare moments you have an idea so good, it feels like remembering something you've always known. I had a very serious Vonnegut phase in college that lasted through most of college and started early in my senior year of high school with one book, Slaughterhouse-Five. The novel mocks humanity's overinflated sense of itself. And bonus, it's anti-military, or at least it's anti-war. So It Goes comes up dozens of times, anytime somebody dies. And it is what popped into my head that day in the truck with my uncles. And the moment it did, I knew it was perfect. Ink Wizard Tattoos was in a small strip mall in Stockbridge, Georgia, just one town over from mine. We entered and stood by the counter looking at all the tattoo art adorning the walls. JC, Uncle Sonny said, giggling, how about this one? He was pointing to this picture of an impossibly curvy blonde woman wearing a see-through negligee. Maybe that'll be my next one, I said, and both my uncles laughed. So seriously, what are you getting, Uncle John asked. I looked at the equipment and the terrible art on the walls, doubt starting to creep in. Well, it's from a book. Figures, Uncle John said. I want something simple, plain text, right here. And I want it to say, so it goes. They were quiet for a second. Uncle John spoke first. That's cool. It's perfect for you. I can see why you like it. Really? I said. Uncle Sonny nodded. You're a philosophical little shit, aren't you? <laughs> Tattoo artist came up. So, who we inking? My uncles pointed at me. The tattoo artist looked me up and down, then stared hard. I just tried to hold eye contact. After a long moment, he said, you got something in mind? You're going to pick something. I described what I wanted. He listened and closed his eyes and thought for a second. If it's simple and clean you want, then you probably need a typeface more than something hand-lettered. You don't want to end up looking like some airbrushed douchebag. Uh, okay. I said. He walked to his computer, opened up Microsoft Word, and started <laughs> typing the phrase over and over again. He rendered each in a different font, looked at the screen for a while, then he said, I think it's this one. Is that Times New Roman, I asked? <laughs> the artist nodded. I looked closer. Felt ridiculous, but dude was right. It was matter of fact and unadorned. It was exactly what I described. Let's do it, I said. The artist looked at my arm for a while, then adjusted the size and spacing of the phrase to extra skinny. He printed it onto temporary tattoo paper. He applied it to my arm and stepped back. 
He looked at me hard. You need to be sure about it. If you don't like it, we can wash it off and try something else. Make sure you're sure. I looked at my arm in the full-length mirror. I expected doubt to creep in, but it felt right. So it, glo- so it goes seemed to preclude regret, which was sort of the point. At the very least, I thought, it'll be really ironic when I regret it. <laughs> I like it, I said. Let's go. Uncle John stopped at a convenience store on the way out of town and came out with three bottles of Budweiser. Your mom and dad are going to be pissed, he said, handing me a bottle. I sipped the beer and nodded. Uncle John started the truck, and we rode in silence for a while. Then Uncle John spoke up. So, he said, do you feel like more of a man? I thought about it. I don't know, I said. It's complicated. Uncle Sonny nodded and looked out the window. Yeah, well, so it goes. This story was curated by Gracie Meyer, directed by Dorothy Milne, and music and sound designed by Mike Prusgoda. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Liv Oath. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, our 2018 to 2019 season sponsor, Skadden, ARP, Slate, Meager and Flom, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Oath, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.